Hello, and welcome to Make Data Human. I'm Anjali Beatty, and on today's episode, we're going to be tackling a very big question that was posed to us on a previous episode by the CEO of Traffic Analysis Hub, Neil Giles. His question was, how do we get human trafficking to be an issue that is taken seriously by corporations? Joining me on this episode are my favorite data enthusiasts, Micah and DBS. So guys, what do you think? How do we get major corporations to take action against one of the world's most enduring crimes? I would start by asking the question, is it actually the CEOs that need to pay the attention? Is, is it them? Are they actually responsible for this? And are they also the actual solution to the problem? <laughs> that's, that's the biggest question, because we can easily assume in saying they do not take responsibility, but these people and, and these corporates work in a system, a huge, huge system huh, that has lots of uh, compliance regulations, uh, lots of systems in place already to check these these um, these horrific events. Uh, but the question is, how can you check it even further? And how can we use data to make that um, whole system more transparent? So uh, I'm not sure if we can uh, take take the fundament of saying they're not doing anything because I think I think they are and they're trying their best. But um, how can we make that? Uh, even more transparent and more effective, because I think that's where the problem lies. Yeah, absolutely. And if we think about how do we actually make it, make what they're doing more effective, where do we start with that? Let's bring it back for a second, right? Like the question that Neil asked very specifically was, for trafficking to be discussed at the boardroom level where CEOs and the board are actually focused on it, in a way that, you know, obviously there's there are certain regulations that exist like modern slavery acts in the UK and Australia that force companies to focus on this. But how do you actually make this something that is a point of focus and that companies take seriously? I think the biggest mistake that we that we sometimes maybe make is is only using emotion uh, by only using emotion to get to get this point across. Um, I think in in uh, in the use of emotion, we we have to take into account that emotions are by definition temporary, and so is attention. Huh? So getting attention in an emotional way that is temporary. Where these processes that these business have are continuous, all the time. So you might spike a temporary interest uh, in emotion, but then you have to gain the uh, momentum. Huh? So I think you need a cocktail, uh, <laughs> a cocktail of policies. So you can promote um, good habits, habits, even when that emotion or motivation based on emotion has has died down. I think that's where the solution lies. So it's a very thorough balance and combination of intrinsic motivation in inside that company. And then the question is, how can you make somebody intrinsically motivated, not only to care about the subject, because I think that's something that Neil pointed out uh, very well. We're great at doing lip service. We're great at uh, announcing great CSR initiatives. But how do you keep that? How do you keep that initiative? I think that's, that's where the, the problem lies. Let's think about that a little bit more. So in terms of this, this cocktail, there's so many different ways you can tackle this. You can go fear-based messaging, which I think a lot of governments try and do. You can go the the roots of I'm going to take you take a stick and whack you over the head with it if you don't follow a certain piece of legislation. Like when you think about a cocktail, 
What do you actually think works? So I think the, the, the biggest problem with a topic like this is might, might actually be the familiarity with it. Who is familiar with human trafficking? Huh? Uh, it's the same with uh, sustainability and sustainability communications. Uh, today is a very hot day here in the Netherlands. Is that because of global warming or is it just really a nice day? When does a topic that is so far away from your day-to-day life, when does that become very personal to you? So when does, when does it hit you at the core for you to say, wait a minute, I might have to change your behavior? So that's, that's the first point where, where I would start. So how can you make a topic like this very, very personal to somebody in order for them to say, wait a minute, I have a role and responsibility in this? To your original question, Anjali, around data and what can data do, I think one of the things that data does, um, well, there's two things, right? And, and I always talk about this. One is scale, right? Uh, so it can, it can help to amplify the problem. Right, it can. It's a proof point. If we can use the data to prove the scale, right? People listen. People sit up and, and listen. And I think, you know, back to to Micah's point about who should be doing it. I actually think it should be, you know, the the workforce. I think it should be us who work for for big corporations actually sitting up. And, and there's a big movement around B corps and. People nowadays, you know, are starting to realise that they can have choices about the, the job that they do and the company that they work for and, and and the ethics of that company. So I think the scale of it is is number one. But then again, to Micah's point, the personalization of the message, how much does that message resonate with you as an individual? And how can we, you know, Neil said it about listening to stories and how do we amplify those stories at a corporate level? And I think those three things kind of come together nicely to, to get to where Michael's going, which is resonating with people. And those people are the people that can have an impact and drive the change. And ultimately that's us. That's the, the workforce. It's not those that sat at the top on, you know, on the thrones, but it, it's, it's us who can drive that change in our masses. But we need that data and we need to also understand not just the scale of the problem, but the details of the problem and how can the business we work for or, you know, the corporations that we're interested in, how can they make the change? Again, all of these answers, I think, can be can be answered with data. This could be really powerful then, because then it's not just one audience group that you're focused on to, to drive change, which... In the challenge posed, it was it was CEOs and it was the boardroom. If you're actually focused on the the company at large and employees, this becomes a much bigger bigger thing you're tackling then, because it becomes a fundamental lever for employee engagement, for purpose, for why people actually stay within organizations, for why they they feel like their values are aligned with the organization. So if you got sort of both ends, that's actually really really powerful. It is a way into the boardroom, right? It's just a different way of making them listen. I think also a different way of answering the problem. And I'm not sure that they see the solution set as the folks that are in the workforce, um, but they could be. Absolutely. So, Micah, you mentioned earlier intrinsic motivations and making this issue personal. Would the solution then be, if we have our two audience groups, employees, and then the boardroom, is the solution then to first increase awareness of human trafficking and the understanding of what human trafficking actually is for those two groups, 
And then to do so in a way where it's very personal and it pulls on those intrinsic motivations and those levers, if you will, is that what the solution would be? Yes, partly, partly. And I think if you, if you want to make a problem land in a very core emotional motivational, intrinsic motivational way, I think it, it has to involve your own direct uh, environment, for instance. So um, I think one of the, the greatest examples uh, I've seen when we talk about um, uh, combating uh, human trafficking was an initiative done by Terre des Hommes a couple of years ago, where they used a thing called uh, Sweetie. And Sweetie was a, a computer animated child that was, was created by, uh, by Terre des Hommes. Uh, it was a 10-year-old Filipino child. It was basically a chatbot uh, and who chatted to, to pedophiles. It was a temporary project and it supported law enforcement in, in helping catch quite a bunch of uh, pedophiles, mainly, mainly in Australia. So it was a great example of how they used computer animation and, and chatbots to catch certain individuals based on their preferences. If we flip this around and saying, how can you make it motivational to the boardroom? What if it was your child that was, what if it was your own child? that was doing uh, forced labor? What, is it, what if it was your child that was recruited into? So you cannot make an emotional connection to something that you do not know. If it's children in, in a factory somewhere in, in uh, Latin America, or if it's, it's, if it's women that are being trafficked out of the Ukraine into Spain, you cannot make a real connection with it because you don't know them. They're far away from you. So I would make a connection and uh, maybe use some examples or videos and and put images on uh, those individuals of their own children or family members to make it personal, to make the story land, because I think that's the most important part. They, they have to be able to connect to, to the story. And I think in the majority of the cases, they can't yet because it's so far away, so far away of a problem. It doesn't mean that they're not interested in it because I think they are, but I think the systems are also maybe not entirely in place yet for them to combat it. If you look at, there's a lot of norms and compliance regulations already in place huh, to make sure that, that child labor is not anywhere present in, in the supply chain yet. But what do they do now? You know, you just follow protocols. And the protocol is very, very clear. If a company says, I have a suspicion of, of child labor in my supply chain, you ask your direct supplier. But in many businesses, you have sub, 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 <laughs> And sub-suppliers and regulations actually only say you have to go to your main supplier and then the one below that, and that's where it stops. So that cascades down into this massive system of all these suppliers might be involved in something, but they all write their reports the way they should. And they all have an opportunity to, to maybe even uh, do that in a not such a transparent way. So it's, so it's twofold, huh? making it personal. And second of all, the actual data available for those uh, people uh, in power, but also the workforce to say, what are we actually doing? So you could have the average, maybe, uh, I don't know, compliance manager going up to the CEO and saying, well, I have a suspicion that somewhere down our supply chain, let's say maybe in a, like a nickel factory, uh, oh, sorry, nickel mine somewhere in Chile, there's uh, maybe uh, some cases of child labor. How do, you, how do you go about that? Where do you go? Because the system in place says, you know, if you stick to your, your ISO norms, you go to your supplier, they go to their supplier, and if the two of them say, well, things are in order, 
how do you go deeper? How do you go further? And where do you find that data? So where do you go? On the first bit, I'm making it personal. You, I, I think it was you, actually. You sent me a UNICEF ad, I think. It was UNICEF or one of the UN agencies that was an ad featuring, essentially highlighting the, the plight of refugees. And it was showing, let's say, children in, I believe it was their own bedroom and their mom's tucking them in. And then you see that same child in a war-torn context. And it was super, super powerful to see that because it suddenly brings you from a very normal reality or what for us is a very normal reality into that reality that unfortunately so many people are experiencing. To you, do you think that went far enough in terms of making it relatable, let's say, to CEOs? Or does it need to go a little bit further to actually create that kind of perceptual bridge? I think it needs to go further. First of all, I think it was a really good campaign because it does show, you know, children globally uh, can end up in, in any situation when the um, situation um, uh, happens to be that way. So it's, it's good to make you aware, but it's based on emotion. Huh? Again, it's based on emotion. So where temporarily they might say, oh, that's that's awful, and they'll donate to, to some, some charity, it might not actually result in long-term behavior change in them actually changing their complete policy and flipping it around and asking very critical questions on, let's say, their supply chain. So I think it was a really good campaign to hit the first nerve, so to say, in saying there's children that are in this situation. Are you aware? So to create awareness. Um, but then, yeah, it, it lacked, uh, to my opinion, and I don't know anything about the effectiveness, uh, the measurement of effectiveness of that campaign. But yeah, how, how do you take that further? What's the next step next to awareness? Which, to your point earlier, it's then pulling on those intrinsic motivations and really communicating to what profoundly matters to them to actually get them to, not that they don't care already, but to actually bring it into a context where it really resonates. Yeah. And, and to DBS's point, I think, do we, uh, as a workforce, have the opportunity to ask these questions and saying, hey, uh, boss, what are we doing about uh, supply chain issues? Where can we create more checks and balances? Do we actually do that? So that's basically worker, <laughs> worker activism, huh, almost, and saying, can you actually hold your boss accountable for the decisions that they make? Uh, and up to a certain extent, I think you can. And up to a lot of, in a lot of cases, you, you can't because the systems are not in place, nor is the data, huh? That's what we're ultimately talking about here as well. Uh, what kind of data do you need and where do you get it in the first place? Where do we get it and what kind of data would we need? I, I think it's it's expanding on simply variables in, in that supply chain and saying, is your supplier free of child labor? <laughs> so if a company can say yes, you know, of course they can. They'll be audited. Maybe they'll there'll be checks and balances. But again, it's it's a cascade of all these different sub 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 suppliers that might not be checked in the end uh, at all. When uh, companies do audits, there's several entities that are involved in such a process. Huh? They all store their data somewhere, so everybody has a report, and everybody can tick a box. But it's not transparent. So I cannot go into a system and look for the sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-supplier and read their reports on, let's say, the demographics of their labor force. You can't. <laughs> and second of all, that's very labor-intensive. Labor 
I can already see DBS's eyes going. <laughs> uh, and, and one thing, one solution for that uh, might actually be blockchain. The word digital transformation pops straight into my head. You know, this is a, this is a problem that the businesses have had for years trying to solve in terms of centralization of data and, and, and technology is, is, you know, is, is the solution set for that. And I think the transparency of data across different organizations that, you know, and that centralization is, is something that, you know, hasn't actually been achieved in many areas. And this is, you know, a, a hugely important one. Um, as I think about, you know, the health service, for example, I mean, they, they have their own challenges when it comes to the security uh, and compliance of that data, and I think the same same issues would 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 be evident for for, for trafficking. But you know, from a, from a technological standpoint, centralizing that, I think the first step is the engagement of multiple organisations in that initiative. Um, I think as soon as you have a first big, you know, few big movers, then it can start to create that centralised data set and and the technology, you know, like IBM's investment, for example, in in helping, you know, stop the traffic to, to centralise their data and build a platform to do it was the first big movement. But there needs to be more. And actually, one of the things I was looking at is, you know, where does this happen? You know, and there was there was some stories that I found about the change that happened during COVID and the move from physical to digital uh, in terms of recruiting uh, for, for human trafficking. And and then I started to look to see where does that happen? And, and a large amount of it happens on Facebook, for example. And then I started to look, say, okay, well, what are Facebook doing to help to solve the problem, right? They've got all of this data that they're sitting on. Are they allowing access to that data for those that are trying to solve these problems? And, and you know, there's, there's Two things, right? There's kind of centralized initiatives like like Neil, you know, is pushing, but then there's also what we're talking about here, initiatives within individual organizations where they're trying to solve their own problems. I think the the first one is a bit easier for companies like Facebook to give access to the data, but they're still not doing it. And I don't even think internally they've got enough of an initiative to try and solve it with the data they have. So I think that this movement is happening outside of of trafficking in terms of putting pressure on the big tech companies to use their data for good. And I think, you know, the more that big corporations can put that pressure on as well as, you know, great groups like, you know, the ones that Neil works with and, and for will help that movement to, to take place. And then that centralization of data that you're talking about, Micah, and the technology that will support that, that movement will start to happen. But it takes you know, it takes an army, uh, but it starts with a few uh, people, you know, uh, connecting those those hands and, and, and starting that walk. And um, I just don't think it's happening yet, anywhere near as much as it should. I mean, Neil's done a great job, but he's scratching the surface, you know, in the large scheme of things. So It's interesting you mentioned Facebook, actually, because when I used to work with Neil, We also had a partnership with Facebook where we worked with their global safety team. And their global safety team is a really small unit within Facebook, but man, they do some amazing work. Like the the level of effort that they put towards suicide prevention, human trafficking, child exploitation, bullying. There's so many different issues that they cover, but they're a really small team as well compared to the rest of the organization. And perhaps more of the investment goes to, you know, platform optimization and 
advertising optimization and perhaps not to, to global safety. But Facebook also does things like gives NGOs like stop the traffic ad credits so that way they can launch their communication campaigns in vulnerable communities and start to raise awareness and give people the information that they need so they're not trafficked. And I, I believe they actually just ran a few campaigns in Ukraine to support refugees to make sure they weren't trafficked after they actually fled. So there's a few things that they do. So first, it's partnering with NGOs to be able to contextualize specific issues more effectively, whether it be bullying, terrorism, etc. The second then is using that information to be able to improve their algorithms to identify, let's say, potential terrorist activity, potential bullying activities, harmful content, etc., and then the the third, and especially when it comes to, ties back to those NGO partnerships, but they do give ad credits and support to NGOs so they can actually run campaigns to make, essentially conduct their initiatives. And Stop the Traffic's a great example of that. I think the challenge is global safety, and Google has a team like this. I believe Apple does as well. Facebook, of course, has one. It's a small unit within a massive organization. And even though the, that activity is happening, most of the people I know at Facebook who are not on those teams have no idea those activities are happening. So even what we've just discussed about employees really carrying the torch around getting companies to care about things like human trafficking, that's not happening because the awareness is not there, even though the company is actually trying to do something about it. Perhaps they're not going as far as they could, I think perhaps all three of us would agree on that, but the activity is happening and still people don't know about it. So that is the other question as well then, is how do you actually break that silo and educate people within these organizations as to what their own company is actually doing and get people to care? Well, it's also a responsibility thing. Huh? You, you asked Neil that, that question, whose responsibility is it to solve this question? And I think a lot of people will default to law enforcement and government in saying, well, it's their task, right? This is about uh, uh, criminal investigations. So what, what does average Joe have to do with a criminal investigation? And that's, that's the realization also for you as a consumer, that if you buy something, that that, uh, that company might owe it to you to explain where their product comes from, how it has been made. We, we want to know whether there is dairy milk or soy milk uh, in, <laughs> in vegan chocolate. Do we also want to know where that soy is coming from and who works on that farm? So, so are we as, as employees, but also consumers, responsible in asking these, these companies, can you explain to me who created this product for you? So that's this activism down the line huh? and maybe also the realization that you can indeed ask these questions and the data, theoretically, <laughs> is there. Um, but they need to prioritize. Huh? Do we prioritize in making that data available to you? Or in creating that data at all? Because even for things like modern slavery reporting, which Australia has the requirements, the UK has the requirements, but no other country does, even then they massively struggle and spend, I don't even want to know how much money they spend on it, but I imagine they spend extensive amount of money with, let's say, your your PWCs of the world to actually be able to map their supply chains and evaluate all of their, their vendors and sub-vendors, which then are in PDFs, which then don't give you necessarily structured data to work with. 
there's that element of it as well that you could actually potentially take that, transform that data into something that is perhaps more structured depending on the reporting templates that are being used as a first step. But we're only talking about then two countries. We're not even talking about the U.S. where so many large companies are, are headquartered. And then there is blockchain, which also is a, a way of creating that data. But what is there in between? Because the blockchain reality, I would guess, is you know a few decades away. I think we're moving that direction, but it's slow. And we haven't even gotten digital transformation correct. So what are those sort of intermediary state steps that you think companies can take to actually start collecting data that's relevant to actually really digging into the nuts and bolts of their supply chains? DBS, I see many thoughts on your face. <laughs> How do we start to, to do it? I think we make it easier. You know, we build standardized approaches from a technology standpoint to allow these businesses to, to do it. One of the things that, popped into my head about how we can assess this and how companies can assess themselves. You know, there's a lot of information out there about how a company portrays itself. Um, you know, there's been some some big movements in, in CSR and the impact that CSR has on stock price, for example, uh, whether or not it's true. But there's been a, a big push for companies to, you know, sometimes it's not always true as well, uh, to say that they're, you know, focused on initiatives when they're not. You know, asking organizations to critically evaluate, is it a part of their core focus? And it should be, right? So it should be in their annual report. It should be, you know, part of the reporting that they they talk about on, on an annual basis. But how do they how do they do that? And I think the first part would be a framework. What are the the areas that they should look for? And how can they look in those areas? So that would be, you know, the, the suppliers of the data and the technology to, to log and track that, that data. So they can at least start with a framework and, and that level of consistency across organizations. So everyone's doing the same thing and they're all putting into database and then giving people like nil access. You know, I think there's, there's a challenge as with any data collaborative, collaborative, as with any data coalition, when companies share data, they don't necessarily want their competitors to access it or, or, or such. But having a centralized group like like Neil or, or, or others to have access to that data, I think, would be the first step, you know, to what Mike was talking about earlier around centralization, which will maybe break down some of those barriers that the individual corporations have around sharing their data because it's just the third party that are focused on on trafficking in, in this example that, that will have access to the, the details of the data um, and they're able to then feed back to each of those that contribute to improve how they collect the data, to improve how they analyse the data, to improve how they change their initiatives uh, or, you know, workflows uh, within, within, their, within their businesses. Right. And then that could be really powerful then from an employee standpoint because if you're actually able to then see the outputs of that to see to a to what extent your organization is actually going to ensure that there are ethical supply chains, but also in instances where they are there are not, which that unfortunately is inevitable. Then what are they actually doing to take action against that, as opposed to and being proactive as opposed to being reactive? 
And actually, I mean, I, I work in PR, right? It can definitely help companies to 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 prevent these big disasters that will likely happen, right? And they do from time to time. Um, but it's it's a reactive industry, right? We only we only do something when there's a disaster, and it's, it's, yeah, or there's a PR disaster, which is an exposed disaster that gets traction and eyeballs, right? And there are many disasters that happen day to day that don't get surfaced within. Uh, within the media. So I think having that level of data will help everyone to, to, to solve these things before they become, you know, a, an, an inherent problem, you know, that, that could build over, uh, over time. To Micah's point earlier, this is where using and focusing on extrinsic motivations perhaps gets us out of that sort of reactive cycle that companies are often in. Because you don't think about tackling something if you don't see that that's an if it's that it's an issue, and it's not something that is on your radar necessarily. If you've seen a campaign though, or you've seen content that not only increases your awareness of that particular issue, but also tugs at your heartstrings in a way that's really, really psychological and visceral, suddenly it is on your radar, and you actually will take action against it in a way that mitigates that potential risk down the line. But I highly doubt that risk experts and perhaps DBS people in in your industry, they might not necessarily be thinking about it in that way. And perhaps that's the, the challenge and the opportunity as well when thinking about how do we actually get companies to be more active, but most importantly, more proactive in this. And it's maybe also possibly a risk versus reward if you have a suspicion of, of three or four children being involved somewhere in a factory way, way, way down your supply chain, are you willing to risk uh, ruffling those feathers for the what 600,000 employees you might have globally? It's Where is that decision point for them huh? to, to, to make that decision and saying, do I really want to know? Or am I going to look the other way because it might have a bigger business impact? And I think that's where data can play a big role. In, in creating that image and saying, actually, it can have a big risk. It's risk modeling huh? or risk prediction and saying it can have because you might not uh, have direct effects down your supply chain, but what about your reputation? Uh, it, it can be. And I think the, the data that is used currently is m- not necessarily uh, the right data to, to do so. So it's integrating multiple data sources, whether it's public opinion Uh, but also your internal data and combining it all uh, and and make a proper analysis. The perfect combination again, right, between humans and and data in order to create that assessment. So more creativity again. (laughs) I love it. That's that's always the point. But from your perspective, what what is the right data? Oh, God, that's (laughs) that's such a difficult question. (laughs) That's such a difficult question. I think Neil made a really good point in saying you have to you have to um, segment between um, who's being trafficked, where are they being trafficked, what is being trafficked, and why. I think you need to dis- distinguish between between those uh, four principles when you gather data huh? on on the where is it happening, uh, what what is happening exactly, uh, but mainly the why. And the why you cannot get out of a um, a report saying um, these are the demographics of our labor force. I mean, you can easily fake those, right? So how can you use different data sources to say who actually works in that factory? 
So there's there's open source reporting on uh, incidents of human trafficking. If you can tie that back to a location of a factory and say to a company, isn't that where your factories are? Did you know that there's occurring reoccurring instances of X, Y, and Z? So it's integrating multiple data sources, uh, multiple ways of, of looking at information and data in, in creating an assessment. And then also being able to predict whether their employees or consumers, whether they will actually respond if there is instances of human trafficking discovered in their supply chains. So it's being able to model both, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm sure DBS can speak to that as well. They're very capable of doing those things in in um, in PR. And analysis in relation to PR and communication, we're really good at predicting audience responses or, or how audience um, uh, will feel about a certain topic. And thus you can create a, an indicator of a certain amount of risk that you that you face. I think that's doable, if you want to. <laughs> if you want to, that's the big question. In the past, we had worked on a project that was related to a fast fashion brand, looking at where they would actually have trafficking in their supply chains, but then also predicting in the markets that were their biggest revenue drivers, which was the US and, and the UK, how they would respond to instances of human trafficking being reported. And we found that there actually was significant risk that people would stop buying from them if human trafficking was discovered, but also that they were extremely at risk for human trafficking because most of their factories were in India. And India has very high rates of child labor and human trafficking anyways. And what we actually found was there was a resistance, not necessarily from that brand, but actually from the internal reps who were focused on risk to approach that company to even talk about human trafficking because it's such a daunting topic and it fundamentally it scares a lot of people. They don't know how to think about it. They don't know how to deconstruct it. They don't know how to, to tackle it. So there's that element as well in terms of actually getting people to, it's not even so much getting people to care about it, but it's getting people to, to think about it and making it digestible for them. How do you think about that? Like where do we start with that? That was a great example where in the end you can push them and say you need to act, but what are they to do in the first place, right? When when you follow the regulation and you do an audit where you say we have a suspicion of, and you want to do an audit of your your supplier and their sub-supplier, that's where it stops because that's the requirement huh, to meet certain compliance norms uh, when it comes to ISO uh, regulation. So that's where it stops. So how can we make those companies and maybe those those uh, risk managers go deeper in saying, no, but I also want to know sub-supplier three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and ask for a very specific type of data, not just you know the demographics or the turnover rate in the labor force, um, because we need to also think out of the perspective of maybe that factory in India that says, well, they're not going to check me anyways, because I'm at the end of the supply chain. And according to regulation, they're not going to come to me for any audit. And if they are, I'm going to just, you know, fake it because it cascades uh, back up. So that's when behavioral science comes back in again. Huh? It's, it's the actual ability because they know that they don't need to uh, necessarily answer that question because there's so many intermediates. If it does become mandatory, if it does become a requirement to say, no, 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 we don't want your labor force from five years ago, 
We want the current labor force and we want you to update it on a daily basis. It's, it's not going to solve the problem, but it creates a barrier, just a simple barrier for them to start thinking like, ooh, what if I don't get away with it this time? So again, it will not solve the problem, but it takes away some of the ability. Some solutions are often very simple where you say, well, you just have to create some barrier for them to create some more transparency in the actual data that they deliver to that um, the huge, huge system of auditing. Uh, which is not transparent uh, at all, seemingly transparent, but might not be in the first place. And Micah, I think that is the, the first layer that will feed into a standardized framework around, you know, you, you said it, right? Who, what, where, and, and why. And I think that's that's the first layer. And then to, to, to Angelie's point about predicting the likelihood of risk, all of these standardized inputs could then feed into almost like a, a chain assessment tool where an organization can see where they may be susceptible and where they should spend their, their focus and, and money because there are so many parts or, or points in the chain where they could uh, spend their focus and money. And then the, 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 the final piece is super interesting, one, one that I think you guys could talk about all day long, which is the why, right? Um, all these things mix in, like Neil was saying, around, you know, that there are different, in different areas of the world, there are different kind of target groups and, and different reasons they're, they're target groups and different ways in which they're exploited. And this all kind of intertwines into what, what one could think of as a messy spider web. But, but actually, to Angelie's point, it has a degree of predictability if we can feed in the right uh, predictors and overlay the right level of intelligence that someone like Neil and and those those groups have to give you that that level of predictability. And Neil had mentioned as well that one of the critical elements in getting that sort of intelligence it actually comes from NGO workers, so actually collecting stories from people on the ground and the patterns that they've seen over time to help understand and contextualize those patterns so that way it makes their predi- those predictions more accurate longer term. So that definitely is one way of getting there. I'm curious though what you guys think in terms of other ways of actually having a little bit more accuracy in those sorts of predictions. Where would that come from and what would that data be? I think, um, I mean, I don't want to go too complex on this one, Angeli, but... Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot in terms of cultural differences, right? And I think incorporating, you know, what we might call auxiliary data in this situation is something that could be super powerful. You know, nowadays we have these these algorithms that can consume massive amounts of data and, and text. And I think putting a story into an algorithm is one thing, but if you put a, a story or, or multiple stories of, of examples of, of maybe those that have overcome uh, the issue or those that are still in, in, in the issue. And then you contextualize that story with information about the culture that they live in and, and, and feeding in all of these kind of uh, cultural nuances. It helps to give that story a level of, of predictability. And we have the ability to, to do that. And then the, the final piece is, you know, there's this concept of kind of weak supervision that's, that's pretty um, popular at the moment, which is bringing in 
um, you know, the, the power of, of labeled data or as well as the domain knowledge that the expert can feed in on top of that. So kind of prompt based. And this is where we could layer on, you know, the the expertise that someone like Neil would have in terms of where to point and what to look at. So those three things combined can help to really contextualize all of those, what might seem like, you know, a handful of data points to become much more than a handful of data points. Uh, and it's it's trying to be clever about how we amplify the the data because I think that's a problem, right? It's the volume of stories. There's, a, there's an issue in getting you know, the NGO workers to actually log these stories and put the effort in and the time in. So how can we be clever about how we amplify the, the, the data when data collection is a big barrier and it's, a, it's an effort? And I know it can be solved a little bit by technology, but, but ultimately it comes back to the willingness of, of those individuals to, to log that data. Isn't it also a little bit about education then on education of those NGOs and saying there's different ways of, of gathering data from those stories without using personal data. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, if we talk about natural language processing, uh, if we have interview transcripts and we can use data from those transcripts, that, that would provide a, uh, like a, a wealth of information that we can use uh, given if we've got enough uh, stories. Um, but maybe also creating an actual movement. Obviously, it takes a lot of power uh, and courage to to tell your story. I, I think what Mo Farah did this week was, was very, very, very admirable to to share his story. I'm sure there's a lot of people that were inspired by that story and said, "Wait a minute, I I can share that story as well. This happened to me. You know, you're not to blame." <laughs> If you're trafficked as a child, that is not your wrongdoing. Eh? You, might, you might think it is, but it hasn't. So if, if you have people that gather somewhere to share those stories, that's data. And I think a lot of people don't realize that um, it doesn't need to go into too much detail all the time. Uh, we need very generic concepts enabled to, to create a very common picture for large groups of people. And I think that's maybe also uh, the challenge there to educate those NGOs and saying, actually, that's not what we need. We don't need the person's name. We might not even need their gender or, or the exact village that they came from. All we need to know is X, Y, and Z. So again, education on the power of data science, uh, what it can actually do, and that it does not always necessarily invade somebody's privacy. And even just a simple audio recording actually telling either one story or several stories, the general patterns of that, that can be done really quickly, but then can provide a really rich repository of insight that could then inform those those types of models that we're talking about. I, Micah, I don't know if you know this story. So when we actually were doing work around human trafficking and we're focusing on Bali, the insight that we got for one campaign that was targeting girls who were being trafficked, not just girls who were being trafficked, but their friends, because their friends were likely to take action, was by saying in the campaign, has your friend received a new handbag or a new phone recently? If they have, ask them where they got it. That came out of a conversation at a random hamburger joint close to Kuta in Bali with an NGO worker, lovely lady who is from, I believe, Texas, actually, who was telling me stories about girls who were being trafficked in the area 
and just the general patterns. And then she mentioned handbags and fake bags specifically. That's where it came from. And you can imagine if we had known that, if law enforcement had known that years and years and years ago, or even as the pattern's evolving, what that actually does for tackling the issue. But it comes from those sorts of stories and those little nuggets of information. But that that goes back to creativity and a strategy for data collection in the first place. We're very comfortable asking uh, the who, what, where, and, and how, but never the why. The why is the most difficult question to ask because we often cannot identify with it as well. It's very difficult to hear those those types of stories. Um, so we're often so focused on on gathering the information that we want to know or what confirms our beliefs. But then we leave this this big white white space of saying what actually happened in their their close environment and why did that happen in the first place? I'm the, as all three of us are, the biggest advocates of, of trying to answer why. Because uh, all the other ones were cap- perfectly capable of answering them. That's that's fine. But the most important one, yeah, that's a fight. Jeez, that's a gem, right? When somebody said, actually, it's their mates. It's always those little remarks, huh? It's always those little remarks somewhere that jump out. Uh, and that's that's analysis, right? Oh, it's such a great occupation, isn't it? I just, <laughs> like, hey, this one stands out. What am I looking at here? It's so fascinating. And and I have to say, equally fascinating. Every time the three of us have a brainstorm about anything, I think my brain explodes. We tackled Neil's challenge and then we got to several things around it as well and adjacent to it. So I'm just trying to distill it all down to its essence. We came up with a lot of things. We came up with leveraging intrinsic motivations not just for a boardroom and CEO level, but also at the employee level and getting employees to essentially be activists in this cause. Then there's the the elements of creating the data and the frameworks to actually be able to map supply chains more effectively. So employees then have the data and the transparency that actually enables them to take action and also enables the board to take action. So there's that element. What else? Optimization. <laughs> yes. Before we go to that one, though, just on that last point, Anjali, I think being creative about how they think about data, you know, to, to, to Micah's point about Mo Farah, there's going to be a massive movement now of people actually coming out and giving their own stories, right? And that's all, that's all available out there. But are companies gathering that and thinking about how they can use it? So I think being creative, and we've kind of come up with quite a few ideas about how we could be creative, but there's a data strategy piece, right? And you guys will know this more than anyone, that any organization out there right now, before even coming onto technology or framework, that they can put in place to to get data, you know, without having to make big changes within their business and their supply chain partners and, and all of that good stuff. There's stuff that, that they can do right now if they're creative. And, and to go back to your to your point, DBS, how you're actually mapping supply chains and then getting very creative about what data is being used to map your supply chain, whether it is collecting stories from survivors of trafficking, whether you're collecting stories from NGO workers who understand the contextual dimensions around trafficking, and building models that get smarter over time, in addition to your own supply chain and identifying whether you're at risk. 
Then there's the audience element. And in this case, we're looking at both consumers as the relevant audience and consumers of a certain company's products, but also your employee base as that audience. And knowing then whether having human trafficking in your supply chain poses a risk to you so you can be more proactive in combating it. While simultaneously, you also are then building your database and supply chain and supply chain ethics to be able to actually map from end to end, is your supply chain clean, fundamentally? And where are the risks? Where could those risks be? And where should I put focus first? So we've got intrinsic motivations for CEOs and changing how we're communicating to them and really making the issue relatable. Like Micah said earlier, what if it was your child? What if it's your sister? What if it's somebody you know who's dear to you? And making it relatable in that regard. Then yeah. And we can visualize that. Huh? You can use computer vision to, to you know, create images of their own children in a situation like that to make it more relatable. Or you could feed in, this is pretty uh, maybe on the edge, but you could feed in a, a, a picture or a profile of themselves or their children or their relatives and scan the known uh, database of traffic victims and pull up the most similar. So it's like, if if you were going to be a victim of trafficking, where, where would it be? Actually, your profile matches exactly what it would be in Poland. Oh, nice. Like, so this could, this could have been you had you been born in, you know, this exact location. That would, be, that would be pretty scary to see, wouldn't it? And I'm sure most people will have a match somewhere. Or if you went to a specific school, not even if you were born in a specific place, but you go to a certain school or your, one of your parents passed away when you were really young and you had to go live with a relative. DBS, you just made my brain explode. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's a great idea. It's like a scenario builder, isn't it? And I think that's a that's a oh, so it's like a story arc to it because there's like right now if if you if you were somewhere, you know, you would be a potential high risk victim. But here's all the ways that you could have got there from where you were born right now. Imagine that, like. Uh, all those horrible, you know, unfortunate, or, or maybe not unfortunate at the time, you think it's a good idea, um, you know, move, relocating somewhere, but then you end up falling into this victim potential that you never knew existed. It'd yeah, be quite harrowing to, to I wouldn't want to see that. We talked about so many different things. Let's consolidate it and get it down to, to its essence. So to get companies and especially the boardroom to care about human trafficking, to make this a priority issue where it's not just lip service that's being done, but action is being taken and proactive action is being taken, not just reactive. We've talked about a lot of different things. So first, actually making this issue relatable to the boardroom. And that's making it personal and really them leveraging intrinsic motivations and making it personal. The second is making it personal, making it relatable and connecting to intrinsic motivations of employees. So employees care. So employees can sort of take the role as activist and really pressure the organizations that they're a part of to take action. In order to do that, there's a few different things that need to be done. So one thing we talked about was 
the actual creation of data within organizations to be able to map supply chains. And that's thinking very creatively and flexibly about how we collect that data, whether it's stories from survivors like Mo Farah and everyone who will share stories as a result of his courage, but also from NGO workers as well. It's collecting data from within one's own supply chains, from external providers like Traffic Analysis Hub, to be able to model what potential risk actually exists within one's supply chains. Then there's the question of, does human trafficking actually pose a risk to the consumer base and to employees? And that's where we actually then need to look at more perceptual and psychological data to be able to predict what that risk will be. So we're talking about sort of four distinct elements that we need to be able to track, measure, and build on that data repository over time. So we're actually able to be more uh, effective and accurate in the predictions that we're making around whether trafficking is indeed a risk. And then the messaging of that to the boardroom to be able to say, not only is it a risk, but also then emotionally and psychologically, this is why you should care and why you need to do something about it. Absolutely. Did I capture it correctly? Did I miss anything? It's a long to-do list. (laughs) Someone's got to do it, though. I mean, there's some super interesting points in there. And what's interesting is Traffic Analysis Hub is already doing a lot of this. So really, then, it's expanding on what data they're collecting, but also how do you take this into more of an employer brand and audience risk predictor type of space so you're able to provide companies with those insights? Because they already provide a lot of insights on supply chains and also on financial flows, which was actually the other part of it, which we, we didn't really get touch on, but ties, of course, to supply chains. So I think it'll be really interesting to go back to Neil, present him with this solution and see where we actually start to tackle this. Two weeks later, we presented the solutions to Neil. He really appreciated all of the ideas, especially when it comes to using data to identify the degree of perceptual risk that trafficking poses to a business. One point I really want to emphasize is that the ideas discussed in this episode don't just apply to human trafficking. They apply to any social issue, including sustainability, gender equality, and many more. So if you're actively engaged with a particular social issue and you'd like some ideas as to how we would approach it, please reach out to us. We'd love to help. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm Anjali Beatty, and you can find more from us at www.thepsych-aigroup.com and where all good podcasts live.